Behind every good story is an interesting person. This is Person of Interest for Q102's Jeff Thomas. All right, my guest this week has been creating since she was a kid, from clothes to jewelry, interior design to parties, raising the bar in the fine art of mixology, creating some of the most inventive and memorable handcrafted cocktails you'll ever experience at her establishment throughout the tri-state. And oh, did I mention she's also a nutritionist? Is that right? <laughs> a bit, yes. <laughs> she is a woman of many trades. Ladies and gentlemen, Molly Wellman is on the program this week. Molly, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I wish people that are listening could see what we have here. We have little glasses out, and they're yes. full of bourbon. Cheers. And what is the bourbon that we are drinking today? So, you know, I every uh, Christmas I have a million emails and um, messages asking me, what bourbon should I buy for my dad, my cousin, my wife, my whoever? And I pick one. This year it's New Riffs. Uh, bourbon. Oh, you're going local. I'm going local. I'm really impressed with this bourbon. And I have no affiliation with anybody or a new riff anybody. I just really love this bourbon. And yeah. I love that it supports the, the local community. Well, cheers. Cheers to you. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I can't come here and um, not have bourbon. Nice. Yeah. Explain this because, um, you know, I'm not a bourbon expert by any stretch of the imagination, but it does seem to have a stronger hint of rye. It does. Than other bourbons I've had. Before. Yes, I think New Riff. Um, I, I love the the complex complexity in this bourbon. I think it's good. I think anyone who's um, even if they're like a weeded bourbon lover or they like the they like to drink rye, um, or if they're new into bourbon or if they're an enthusiast in bourbon. All can definitely enjoy this bourbon. It's a, a roundabout, all everybody bourbon. I think that's a great way to describe it. <laughs> so you introduced me to my first bourbon. Yes, we did a bourbon tasting at one of your places. Was it was it Old Forester? It was a number of bourbons, bourbons. but Old Forester was one of them. Yes. Prior to that, I didn't really like the smell of bourbon. Oh gosh. <laughs> But you somehow taught me to deconstruct it in a way that gave it personality and character. And I discovered that by easing my way in, I, I really developed a, a love for bourbon. I'm so a healthy. I'd like to say it's a healthy love. Healthy and responsible. Healthy and responsible That's love. The exactly. best way to enjoy bourbon is a, in a healthy, responsible way. Right. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's really important. It's not about just knocking back bourbon in one, you know, big shot of it um, and doing several of them and falling off of the bar stool and like acting like an asshole, you know, like you, that's not what bourbon is about. Bourbon is about an experience. It's about history. Um, It's, it's like you're drinking, you're pretty much drinking the history and, and the uh, lore of this area when you drink bourbon. And I think that has something to do it. And there's so much complexity in it. And I, you know, I love um, when I run into uh, women who drink bourbon, you know, when they've come to like understand how to taste it, we have, you know, as women, we have a more detailed palate and we can taste more of the different flavors in here if we slow down and really pay attention to what we're tasting. So I think that goes along. And anytime anyone comes into the bar, I, um, I will sit down and be like, okay, let me teach you how to taste this properly if you're not a bourbon drinker. And I love when, you know, people understand and they're like, oh, Oh, now I see what we're drinking. This is this makes complete sense. So if you're a person who like always wondered, like, hey, I'd love to like taste bourbon, but I just can't get past that harsh taste. 
come and see me. I can help you. I'll hold your hand. It'll be okay. You changed my life. <laughs> I'm so glad. <laughs> my my uh, my co-host Tim. Yes. On the show on the Jeff and Jen Morning Show, he for my birthday gave me Traverse City. Oh, very bourbon. nice. And that that surprised me because I didn't know that you could call it bourbon if it didn't come from Kentucky. Mm-hmm. That is a misconception that uh, a lot of people have. And, you know, Kentuckians, they're so proud of their bourbon. They really are. And I'll tell you, 95% and opinionatedly, I think that the best bourbon comes from Kentucky. But through the standards of identity, bourbon can be made anywhere in the United States of America, as long as it's in America. But like I said, 95% comes from right down the street in the Amber Triangle of Kentucky. In order for it to be bourbon, it has to what? It has to be at least 51% corn. It has to be aged in a new char oak barrel. A new char oak barrel. Yes, new char oak barrel. And I'll get to that as well. Okay. Um, It has to go into the barrel no more than 125 proof. uh, Distilled no no higher than 160 proof. And nothing else can be added to it. And it can only be, it has to be made in the United States of America. So those are pretty much, I feel like I'm missing one. But pretty much those are the standards of identity. Now, to to be called a straight bourbon whiskey... Uh, it has to be aged at least two years in a barrel. Mm. And if it's aged under four years, then an age statement has to be placed on the bottle. Okay. If it's under four years. Under four years. It, there has to be an age statement on the bottle. Exactly. There has to be an age statement on the bottle. Now, it, when it says Kentucky straight bourbon, that's when it's made in Kentucky. But there's some really great bourbons that are made in West Virginia and Virginia there's some great stuff that's coming out of New York. And Michigan, evidently. Michigan. This stuff I got out of Traverse City was actually yes. pretty good, pretty I've smooth. Had, I've had the Traverse City. It's really good. It really is. That's the other thing. There's been an explosion of craft distilling going on all throughout, not just America, but the world. Uh, but America's really uh, you know, taken hold of this. In Ohio, though, we've only been able to distill since 2007, so since, since Prohibition. Yeah. So, but before, before prohibition, we had one of the, one of the, you know, we had so many distilleries in this city making booze. It, it's crazy. I'm actually doing a lot of research on that right now. <laughs> Maybe a book will come out of it or something. I don't know. And that's what I love about you is the research you do to come up with inventive ideas for cocktails. Oh, for yeah. you. Now you have two establishments, we should say. Yes. Japs and Myrtles. Yep. Japs downtown and over the Rhine. And those are Molly owned establishments. They're my bars. Yes. yes. But if anybody ever says, Oh, I came to your bar, I it is all for you. It is all for the people of Cincinnati and your friends and family. It's it's just for me to have fun in and make really cool cocktails, but that bar is for you to entertain in. And then for you to enjoy the cocktails in, of course. <laughs> so let's go back. Okay. Before all this happened. Yeah. What kind of kid were you? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think I was always still a nerdy kid. <laughs> you grew up here. <laughs> yeah. I grew up right behind Northgate Mall in Colerain. And I have two sisters. They're both younger than me, but they both act older than me. <laughs> 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 when, I, when we were growing up, I was... I think I was probably the tr- more troublemaker, or maybe I, since I was the oldest, I was the one that got in trouble for most stuff. Did you set out to get in trouble, or did it just happen to you? I just am a creative person. You don't strike me as a troublemaker. Well, no, I wasn't a troublemaker. I just I had my own ideas about things, you know? And um, I always wanted to know why and how and things, you know, were put together. 
I wanted to do things on my own all the time too. So it was kind of a, but I was a nerdy kid. I had, I had my own, still had my own style of doing everything. Like I remember in grade school, I had this train hat. My dad was um, an engine, uh, engineer for the CG&E train set that was down at, you know, CG&E. He right. was one of those engineers. He worked for CG&E for like 44 years. And every Christmas he would be down there and he always wore an engineer hat. And so he got me one and I wore it every, I wore it every day. Like when I was like 12. So I would, you know, I always had my own style all the time. And in high school, I would go to the thrift store and I would buy clothes and then I would reconstruct them into how I wanted them, you know, to wear them. So I always wanted to be a fashion designer. And what kind of reaction did you get from your friends at school? Oh my gosh, I got made fun of so hard. I really did. It was, it wasn't, it wasn't fun going to school in grade school for me. But that takes bravery to keep on being you in the face of that. Well, you know, I never, you know, (laughs) it's funny. I I think some uh, listeners could remember I'm in my 40s. So back in the 80s, there was this style of wearing a barrette that had like these ribbon, like weaved through the barrettes and then you'd have the streams come down. And I thought it was so dumb. I couldn't get into that. (laughs) I was like, I don't like that. I would never wear that. But I always had my own style. I just never fit in with the rest of the kids at school. And at home, I was always fine with it because I mean, I was always doing art or I was like, I was taking my sister's or my mom's clothes apart and resewing them, which they didn't like. Oh, <laughs> and or I was, you know, I remember when um when I was little, I painted a, uh, I drew a um, fake trapdoor in the closet, so it looked like it was going into a secret world in my closet. <laughs> And you're not doing it to be antagonistic or a troublemaker. No. You were just expressing your creativity. Yeah, I just, I just had like my, uh, I lived in my own world. Really did. Yeah. I still, I think I still do in a way. <laughs> I think you and I have something in common. I read somewhere that you have dyslexia. I do. I do have. I dyslexia. do too. Yeah. When were you diagnosed? I was in grade school. I remember I went to see John uh, Dryridge out in Coleraine. And uh, up until the third grade, and they didn't know what to do with me because I my mind was in the clouds all the time, and I I, I was I'm still to this day a terrible speller. I couldn't figure out where to put punctuation. You know, I couldn't figure out. And then I was a terrible speller because I would spell things backwards, or I'd get uh, letters mixed up, or you know, I had the hardest time with remembering which way the D or the B went when I was really young. It was it's such a weird thing. Like my mind just wouldn't work that way you have to think twice when guessing like left versus yeah, right still to this day i have the same to way. i have to put my um hands up and look for the l mm-hmm. I, I don't know if anybody else can um understand that but that's how i still i have to figure out left that way but you know when i i, I got switched into uh saint james white oak you know and there is where i was i think i was pretty much diagnosed but it was never like somebody took me in a room like oh, let me sit you down and say have dyslexia you know like it was never like that it was more okay we just need to find a different way to to for molly to learn you know and i was really grateful that because i learned so many different tricks that the normal you know my the kids in school were you know on an everyday basis like what we were taught how we were taught i just had to learn a different way and i still learn that I, i think in pictures you know that's i think that's how i can do all this history stuff it's interesting Stories and pictures. I was diagnosed in the ninth grade, but it wasn't until I flunked out of the ninth grade. Really? And they said, we just think this kid's not applying himself. We don't understand. He seems like a relatively intelligent guy. We just don't think he's paying attention. Right. And 
my mother just had that, you know, she had that mom's instinct that said, no, I think there's more to the story here. Yeah. And so she had to foot the bill herself to have a core evaluation done that would really kind of get into the nitty gritty of how my brain worked. Right. And when it was discovered that there were issues with reading comprehension and spatial relations, and I could still, like you said, I could still learn. I just had to learn a different way. That's right. That's exactly how it was for me. I think a lot of kids are are dyslexic. I run into parents now who, um, I think there was an article written where I was talking about that and they're like, oh, I heard you're dyslexic. My kid's dyslexic too and da, da, da. And we, and it's really interesting to talk about that. I, I think there's a lot of kids out there who have dyslexia and, and don't know. And it's, it is a different way. And are struggling. Yeah. Undiagnosed. Exactly. And it, yeah. and you know, I, I hope to know that they're very smart. It's just, they're smarter than most kids are just smarter than the way that the usual curriculum yeah. of teaching is in, in your standard school is they probably are smarter than that. So it's just they need to learn a different way. We're all so special, you know? We're so cool. Unique. <laughs> exactly. Individuals. Exactly. What did you think you were going to be when you grew up? Oh my God, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Since I was seven years old, I wanted to be a fashion designer. I remember I got I had a, a, a subscription to Vogue and I would go and I'd pull out like the um, outfits I wanted and I would try to like go to like thrift stores in high school and when I was a little girl I got my grandma's sewing machine and my grandma taught me how to make a skirt out of a pattern and I wanted to be a fashion designer so bad and then I actually got a job at Chanel when I lived in San Francisco (laughs) how does that happen I don't even know that's a whole nother story wow but it was like a dream come true I'm like oh my gosh I'm going to work for Chanel. And it wasn't like making clothes, but it was working in this like high-end boutique. Just being around that. Yeah, it was really cool. It was like, oh, it was a really neat thing. But then I realized these people are freaking nuts. And I didn't want to be a fashion designer anymore. (laughs) (laughs) What do you you think when you say they're nuts, meaning that they were obsessed with things that you weren't necessarily obsessed with, like image? Yeah. Or was there more to it? They spent a lot of money on the stupidest things. I mean, there was like some some really ridiculous things that came through that boutique. And some were really beautiful. I mean, there was some like I think I I'm such I'm a classic girl. And I I'm I'm, I'm cons- you would when you look at me you don't think I'm a very conservative person, but I'm I'm like pretty classic person, you know? I don't look classic, but I am. And there was something excuse me, there's some things that are just the way out of there. So far out that people would drop thousands and thousands of dollars on that I just I just blew my mind. I don't yeah. know. Just having to deal with being a, a girl from Cincinnati growing up behind Northgate Mall and then going to San Francisco and having to deal with these people from all over the world who didn't have a sense of down to you know, they weren't down to earth at all. It just made me not like that whole industry. Well, there was recently an, a social experiment on the internet at the Payless. with Payless Shoes. I know, that was so funny. Paylessy. I know, I love it. Where they where Payless Shoes set up this fake high-end boutique, invited all these influencers yeah. to come and shop for basically their shoes at ridiculous markups to test what influenced people's perception of a brand. And they discovered that if you put a high price on it, people naturally think it's better. I thought that was the funniest thing ever. Being in high-end retail at one time and knowing exactly who those people are, it was really funny. I thought that was brilliant. And they ultimately got their money back. Yeah, they did, which is good. But I think it's really, it is a very funny, even at Chanel, like there were some things that 
this is ridiculous. There were some really, really well-made things, but some things were like, this is, anybody can make this. This is stupid. You know? <laughs> what is your favorite form of expression? Is it fashion? Or think, is it cocktails or something else? Oh, you know, it's, I think it changes all the time. I think cocktails are one of them. Yeah, but oh, that's a great question. Or is yeah? it the way you present yourself? Because it is. I think it's, I think it's the way I present myself because I'm interested in, I, I have a love for um, the past, the, the present and the and then the future so i'm presenting myself in um ways to bring more of that to light i think and i do that i think through um you know the way i look tattoos and then my the way i dress through how i put my brand out there to the cocktails that i make as well because i'm doing past now and and hopefully future drinks as well and then i, I just things that organizations and things i get myself involved with you know Let's talk about your first tattoo. Okay. It's this one. I know you can't see, but it's this one right here. The one around <laughs> your, we're looking at your right, kind of just yep. above your wrist. Exactly. It's like, you know, it's a sunburst. It's a, it looks like a bracelet. And a friend of mine did it. Or a friend of mine designed it. A really close friend of mine designed this. He drew me this beautiful picture of a sunset with the sun and everything. This was in the 90s. This would have been 1991. No, about 1992. Yeah, 92, I would say. And um, it's kind of tribal looking. That's the style then. And another friend of mine did it for me at a party for beer money. Don't do this, kids. Don't do that. (laughs) This is coming from Molly Wellman. Yeah. Don't go to a party and have somebody who thinks that they could tattoo do that. But this was a tattooer. He was in town from um, New Orleans and he was a professional Go to a professional tattooer for your tattoos. That is important. That is very important. I can't stress that enough. But if you were around in 1992, it would have been okay. <laughs> but this was thought out. This was thought out. This was thought out. And it was done by a professional. Just happened to be at a party. <laughs> you must have an incredible tolerance for pain when you consider where. Yeah. Many, I mean, I'm looking at your neck right now. You know, and that's that seemed that what I would think is a very sensitive part of the body to have. I really thought it was going to hurt the worst, but it was the least painful really? to do for me. I, some people say it was for them; it was the most painful. But um, I have still stuff on my sides, you yeah. know, that um, have been there for ten years that are just an outline that my tattoo artist is always like, "When are we going to fill those in, Molly?" <laughs> but it hurts so much, and the older I get, the worst I, I think it's the worst pain. I just got tattooed the other day. And I had to take a couple breaks. Really? <laughs> yeah. Like, why does this hurt worse than it did when I was younger? I don't know. You feel like the older you get, the more it hurts over yeah. time? You th- Maybe it's the less, like, you know, the less I'm, I can take. I Our tolerance know. for pain? Yeah. Can you, can you say what it was that you had done? Yeah, I just, um, I, I have a tattoo artist. His name's Chris Sanders. He has a tattoo shop on um, 4th Street called Nightshade. And I've been t- getting tattooed by him for the last almost 17 years. And I got uh, some birds on my leg done. And then I'm going back next month to get some stuff on my other legs. And you're also married to a tattoo artist. I am. And, you know, it's funny. So um, I'm married to B from Belistic. Everybody knows him as Tim Gundrum on Facebook. He's been a tattooer forever. And I've known B for, gosh, I've known B since the 80s. And he traveled around the country tattooing. And, you know, we were both in San Francisco at the same time. And then we came back here. And he opened his tattoo shops, you know, and then I moved back to, San, to Cincinnati from San Francisco and I would, ta- I would bartend his tattoo parties, you know, and that's how we kind of reconnected. And then, uh, two years ago we got married, which is just crazy, but he doesn't do my tattoos. 
But he's a great tattoo artist. Yeah. Has he, <laughs> has he tried to do your tattoo? Has he ever said, let me? No. Do? He's no. respectful. There's a, it's, I sense a boundary there. Oh, yeah. When we first started dating, he's like, I don't tat. I was like, I hope you don't think you're going to do my tattoos. Like Chris Sanders does my tattoos. You know, once you find a great tattoo artist, you tend to stick with them, you know, especially when you're as covered as I am. Yeah. And he gets it. And he gets it. And he's really great friends with Chris and, and B are really good friends. And, uh, he thinks Chris is a fantastic tattoo artist. So no, we, we had a, um, he's like, I don't tattoo my girlfriend. So we have that boundary. He's my husband, not my tattooer. <laughs> Your husband who you met in San Francisco. Well, I met him here in Cincinnati. Gotcha. We just happened to be in San Francisco at the same time. And what brought you to San Francisco? <laughs> my, one of my best friends. Um, she was, I went to go visit her one year when I was in my twenties and, uh, her roommate had moved out and she's like, why don't you just stay? So I came back here, sold all my stuff, took my cat, my sewing machine and a, all my clothes and moved out to San Francisco. My mom wasn't happy, but <laughs> what, what a great city. That's one of my favorite cities in the world. Oh, it's so beautiful there. It really is. I thought I'd stay six months and I was there for 12 years. 12 years. Yeah. How could you even afford it? San Francisco is going to be the most expensive city in the country it, it, if New York isn't. It really is. I, it is more expensive than New York. It really is. I've been in New York. I haven't lived in New York, but I've been in New York. Yeah. I like San Francisco way better than New York. Yeah, I really do. I can only spend like three days in New York. Anyway, you can figure out ways to live in, in a place. You can you make know? it work. You can make it work. And it was expensive, but I, I did work full commission in high-end retail for a while. And then... I took a year off and went to school out there. Then I got into hospitality and did really well with that. So just a matter of working it out. And when you say you got into hospitality, yeah, meaning what? I got into bartending and yeah. uh, working in restaurants and bars. And I worked in a nightclub for like five years. And I was a bartender for a little bit. But then I got into um, cocktailing where I made like three times more money cocktailing out there doing bottle service and is that something you just fell into? I didn't plan it at all. And my friend wanted me to come and work at her restaurant that she had opened as a food runner. And then the bartender didn't show up. And then I got literally thrown into it and never looked back. But then I cocktailed for a while because I made more money doing it. And it was so much easier just bring bottle service. And then it wasn't fulfilling, you know. So I came back to Cincinnati and then I got back into bartending. But in a whole different way that, you know, what I'm doing now with the history and cocktails the classic cocktails i mean you're more than just obviously a bartender you know you're also a respected mixologist a creative someone who's known for their creativity but you're also known for the way you express yourself and your personality and and the way you present yourself it's a it's a big part of your brand at what point in your career did that start to take shape so i think really when i when i came back to cincinnati in 2008 um i started looking you know i was like i didn't know how the city would accept me because i'm a little more colorful you know with all the tattoos and everything i really wanted to make sure that i kept my identity i wanted to still have my style and everything and so i was i didn't know how the city had changed in 12 years and i so i got a job bartending at this place called chalk across the river and they wanted somebody who could make craft cocktails and, and classic cocktails and I had been working in a nightclub for five years and didn't get in. So I was, I went home and I was like, I was staying with my parents because I had just moved back. And I was like, Mom, we got to look up classic and craft cocktails because I got a job and I told them I could do this. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt like I started researching it and I fell down the rabbit hole. I started reading all these books that were written over 100 years ago about how drinks were made. 
I started sitting around and listening to the chefs and the cooks at Chalk talk about, you know, the next day's specials and what they needed. And then the, their, the way that they would weave flavors together it was genius. And that inspired me to like make these craft cocktails to like pair with what they were making for the next day. And I loved it. I love the history of, of the cocktails and how with when you make a cocktail or you research a cocktail or you serve a cocktail, you go back in time and you can tell a story and you can make an experience with it rather than just serving a drink and saying that'll be, you know, $5. Do you have a favorite story associated with a cocktail? There is one. And this actually isn't the story of the cocktail, but it's something that inspired me. There's a cocktail called an airmail cocktail. And it was created in the 1930s. And it was just one of those cocktails that was, you know, a recipe in a book. And that's, there's a lot of them like that. They don't really, we can't really find why this person came up with this. It could have been on the fly, you know. But when I read, when I make this cocktail, I think about a thing in history that happened here in Cincinnati in the 1830s um, from this guy, John Clayton, who was a balloonist. He was also a silversmith and a jewelry maker and and a watchmaker. But his passion was ballooning. You know, he loved hot air balloons. And he would have these great uh, events in Cincinnati in the 1830s. Think about 1830s. You know, this would have been farmland where we're sitting here right now. And he would like, he had this idea to have this event in July of 1835 where he was going to bring a piece of mail from Cincinnati to the East Coast. The first unofficial air mail. So he loaded his balloon up. He made a big deal. There were bands playing. There were there was actually like souvenirs given out. Like there were these like crazy boxes that I think our our history museum still has these these boxes of John Clayton's big event. And he you know, get up went up in the air and he, he got pretty far. And then he started losing altitude, so he had to like dump a bunch of stuff, including his dog. But he just let the dog out very gently. Oh. He found the rope. It's okay. <laughs> he's like, what about the dog? Right, right. Um, and then he made it almost to West Virginia, and his balloon got stuck it. In, in a tree and a knob. You know, they have knobs out there instead of mountains. They have oh. knobs. And uh, it's called Keeley's Knob. And he had to find a mountain man to help him, like, you know, a knob man, I guess, to help him get, like, the balloon out. Right. And send it back on a steamboat back to Cincinnati. But And then he sent the package in a stagecoach to the East Coast. But it was the first unofficial airmail. And I think it's such a cool story that we had here in Cincinnati. And every time I serve that drink, I tell that story. So so what exactly is in an airmail again? Oh, it has, I'm sorry, it has rum, fresh lime, honey syrup, and then it's topped with champagne. It's delicious. Well, I want to take a break here because when we Ooh. come back, we're going to ask you what your favorite cocktail is, Ooh. what makes a great cocktail, cool. and what you see for the future of downtown and talk about some of your establishments and oh. Molly's brand. I love it. All right, coming up <laughs> as we continue on Person of Interest. We'll be back with more Person of Interest in a moment. And now, Person of Interest with Q102's Jeff Thomas continues. All right. Well, my guest this week is Molly Wellman, who is a woman of many trades, but uh, she's best known for her two establishments, Japs and Myrtles. And I said Molly's Brands because that is the name of your organization now. Yes, it is. She is uh, not only creative, but she is determined and fiercely independent. Molly Wellman, welcome back to Person of Interest. It's good to have you in this week. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. It's so cool. We were just talking about cocktails a few minutes ago and and, uh, what inspires some of your cocktails. And uh, I I guess that's sort of my question is, what makes a great cocktail in your opinion? Balance. I think balance makes a great cocktail. People always ask me, how do you make these cocktails so, so, so well, so great? It's about measuring. You know, there's a little bar tool 
It's called a jigger, and it's uh, usually a two-sided. It's a little measuring cup that we use to measure out uh, the ingredients. And I think balance is key. You don't want anything to be too sweet. You don't want anything to be too sour. You don't want anything to be too this or that. Right. And you don't want anything to be too strong. And heaven forbid it's too weak. You know, so balance is the, the perfect way, is, is the most important thing for a cocktail. It's interesting that you say that because when I first started drinking bourbon, it was old fashions for me. Yeah. And then after a while, it became too sweet. And then yeah. sort of graduated to Manhattans. And I still love a good Manhattan, but I right. always am asking the bartender to doctor it by, can you just sort of like cut the sweet vermouth in half? Maybe just a right. little bit, just a dash. Can I have it on an ice ball instead of on the rocks if you have a large format ice cube or something yes. like that? Yes. And then there are moments like right now where we're just sipping New Riff right. Kentucky Straight Bourbon. You got it. We're straight. Right. Exactly. So... Um, I always say you can drink. I mean, I have people who come in and they like things to be a little sweeter. They like things or I have a ton of people who are like, I don't like it too sweet. It's all about balance. And one of the things that I try to do um, is to make, make sure that the sweetness and the, the sour are balanced. So it's not overpowering. It's funny how cocktails have changed as well through uh, the last 150 years, even longer than that, actually. 200 years have changed and the tastes have changed. And, you know, just 30 years ago, everybody wanted things to be really sweet. They wanted these really sweet drinks. Right. And now it's, they want balanced drinks. They want something that has complexity and interest. And the other thing I think is really important to make a great cocktail is to have some kind of story behind it, to have some kind of um, thing that's going to make you think while you're sipping it, you know, even if it's something that you can like, um, discuss with the person next to you or think about like if you want to tell somebody else about like i had this great drink at jobs and they told me the story about this that and the other thing this was made with you know drink by sailors and da 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 da. um i think that that kind of gives it an experience then that's the history you're talking about exactly and that's a big deal to me what is your favorite to make i love making manhattans it's the first drink i ever learned how to make this was way before i was a bartender and it's not such a sweet drink. And I think that using, you have to use quality ingredients for that drink. You really do. And you have to use the right amount, like the sweet vermouth you were talking about. Yes. I'm very particular about making sure that vermouth is, is, is a good vermouth and that it's fresh, you know, been kept in the refrigerator, not on the back of the bar for six months. Right. Um, the uh, kind and amount of bitters that you put in to balance all of that, to balance the sweetness of that vermouth. And then how you're going to make that Manhattan be almost personal to the guest Mm. or to yourself by what kind of whiskey you're going to be using. Are you going to use rye? Are you going to use a weeded whiskey? Are you going to use a a bourbon? You know, what are you going to use? Do you have go-to bitters for a Manhattan? Yeah, I do. Um, There's two that I like. One is Angostura. I mean, I can't go, you can't go. I have that at home. Good. Everyone should have that at home. If you make cocktails at home, you should have Angostura bitters. And if you walk into a bar and you want to get a Manhattan, and you don't see Angostura behind the bar, Yeah, turn around and walk out of that bar and go somewhere where they have it because you will not get a good Manhattan if they don't have bitters. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Just turn around and go out because it's not, it's a great bar, I'm sure, but it's not a great bar for a Manhattan. Okay. Okay. Um, you need bitters to balance that drink. Um, the other one is I love the Woodford Reserve cherry bitters. I love that now. They I've never are, had them. Oh and my I love gosh. Woodford Reserve. I'm going to have to get you uh, a bottle. Now, they are they, they, they cost a little pretty penny, but they are so worth it. You're using a dash or two. Okay. They're so good. They're great in Manhattan's or old fashions. I love them. I, I swear by them. 
How do you make your Manhattan? I make my Manhattan. I do this little little thing where when I'm um, chilling the glass, I always you know put ice in the in the in the cocktail glass. I like it up in a mar- in a uh, cocktail glass, okay, with a stem. And uh, I usually will what we call wash the glass with dry vermouth first. So uh-huh. I'll pour just a little dry vermouth in the glass with the ice and kind of let that coat um, the inside of the glass. And you're mixing in the glass. I'm I'm not mixing the glass. I'm just no. using that to chill. I'm washing the glass. I see. It's a technical term, Jeff. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning so much. This is great. <laughs> but then in a in a mixing glass, I'll mix together. Bourbon, I like bourbon. I like high rye bourbon Manhattans. That's what I like to drink. And then I'll t- use uh, only just a half ounce of Carpano Antica um, sweet vermouth. Now, if I don't use Carpano Antico, I, I, I really love to use Vaya, which is out of California. And it's a fantastic uh, sweet vermouth that I, I really enjoy. And then about two or three dashes of Angostura bitters or the Woodford Reserve bitters, depending on which bourbon I'm using. Meanwhile, as we were saying at the beginning of the podcast, today we're drinking New Riff because this is your recommended bourbon of the year. Right. You don't have any partnership. They're not paying you to say this. Not at all. You like it because it has high rye content. It has high rye content. I think the complexity is awesome. And I think it's a bourbon that um, any, any, whichever way that you sway with your taste in, in bourbons, whether it be high rye or a weeded or Angel's Envy. I think that this taste encompasses that. Plus, I love that it's a local, and I, I love to support local quality products, and I find this to be a quality. Is that the question you get asked the most, is what kind of bourbon should I get my... Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. That or... Um, and and I, I, it doesn't bother me at all. I will answer as, as many as I possibly can get to, I'll answer. Yeah. Um, and I also get asked, what, sh- what should I make for my party? So, you know, like what cocktail, what punch should I make? And I will get back to you with that. I have no problem sharing recipes ever. Yeah. I love it. Let's talk about your current ventures. Okay. Japs Ooh. and Myrtles. Yeah. You've been associated with Japs for a long time. Eight years. Yeah, I've had Japs for eight years. It's my baby. It's uh, my second home, you know. <laughs> yeah. It might be my first home and then my actual house is my second home. <laughs> um, but yeah, Japs is a really special, special place. It's been a part of Cincinnati through generations now. So I feel like I have to be a, almost a caretaker of this historical place. I mean, let's talk about Japs for people who have never been. Okay. You know, the so, character of Japs and where it is and what yep. makes it so unique. So Japs is located at 1134 Main Street. It's a block. It's on Main Street, a block from Central Parkway North. Uh, and it's right opposite of 12th Street. We like My building looks straight down 12th Street on Main Street. And it used to be a wig and hair store back from 1879 to about 1985. It was owned by a guy named John G. Jap. Um, and he, I did the whole history on him. He was a very interesting, awesome dude. He was really cool. Uh, such a renaissance man. But when he moved to Cincinnati, he, he lived in a couple places, Texas and St. Louis and Chicago. Um, but then he moved to Cincinnati and he established this um, hair store. And uh, he also owned a toiletry company and he made hair dyes and perfumes and all this stuff. Anyway, um, he ran that store up until um, himself, up until 1937 when he passed away. And then it was passed on through generations of the Jap family until 1985. And then 1992, a guy named Neil Barstow came in and made it a bar. And then it had been bought and sold by a few owners through 
the 90s into about 2002 and then it closed like completely and it was closed up until i got my hands on it in 2010 and turned it into a cocktail bar so what we do at japs we do cocktails from the 1700s to the 1950s but we also have wine we have a great wine list we have beer on we have a few beers on tap and i always do local uh and then we have uh canned beer and we do normal stuff too and I also say, like to say, we do non-alcoholic drinks as well. Um, I love my, I call them my wagon riders. I have a lot of friends who don't drink alcohol as well as drink alcohol. And I want to make sure that they feel as just as comfortable coming into Japs as the people who are drinking are too. Yeah. So we do a lot of non-alcoholic. It's always in a fancy glass and it always makes you feel like you don't have to take an Uber home. <laughs> right. So we do, we do a lot of non-alcoholic drinks as well. But you're in this very historical place. And if anybody's read about anything about me, I don't like TVs in bars. So we don't have TVs in the bar. I want everybody to focus on, you know, the environment they're in and the people they're with. And if they want to meet new people, it's a much easier way to meet people when they're not like zoned in to like ESPN. So no TVs in the bars, but we do have music. We have bands that play Friday um, happy hours. We have the burning caravan that plays and they are the best, the best. They've been with me for five years and um, they always say that I lock them in the basement, but I don't. <laughs> <laughs> They're so cool. It's really fun. How do you recommend a first timer experience Japs? I would come in on a weekday. Weekdays um, downtown in in general are unless there's a big event going on. They're they're so peaceful. You know, it really is. It's a way that you can really like mingle with the locals. I meet the best people during the weekdays at at Japs. Well, that I can actually have a conversation. I was with, just going to say, you know? probably have a little more time to actually talk to them because yes. you're not as spread thin. Exactly. It's it. It really is nice. Um, I hang out as much as I possibly can because I do a lot of things around the community and everything. But I try to be in my bars as much as I can. I might not be behind the bar, but I always will jump back there if somebody wants me to make a cocktail. But I love meeting the people who come in and chatting with them and finding out their story. Right chit-chatting about like what's going on in the city or i meet a lot of people from out of town who come in and they want to find out what cincinnati is all about but we have a lot of great regulars as well and just catching up with them they're like family you know so i think that if if you don't like the 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 crowds and everything it is a magical place just to come on the weekdays and we're open tuesday you know tuesday through saturday and it doesn't matter what age i have a lot of people who are like older and they'll be like oh that's too young for me no no <laughs> I have people from, you know, 21 to 95 years old that come into the to Japs. Wow. It runs the gamut. Every kind of person. I have punk rockers who will come and sit at my bar. Then I'll have priests who come and sit at my bar. That's you great. Know? So it's, it's, I love it because it is every kind of person you can find. And it's, it just, it, you see the richness of our city. And then Myrtle's Punch House is so different to me. It is. For someone who's never been to either, how does Myrtle's Punch House differ from Japs? So Myrtle's is is in East Wanted Hills. It's on um, Woodburn Avenue, right at, at a street called Myrtle. It is a block from Madison. And we like look at the uh, St. Francis de Sales Church. It's so beautiful. But Jap, or excuse me, Myrtle's is a punch house. And it's funny, I'll see like things on Facebook, like, what's the, what is a punch house? Okay. So punch house, we serve punch. And it's not like the punch, you know, like, you know, you had in college where it's like a hairy buffalo or anything. These are punch recipes that date back 500 years. Okay. Punch is something that is a very historical way to drink. And it's, it's a way of 
of sharing your ideas and your dreams around a punch bowl. So when I opened that bar four years ago, Walnut Hills was up and coming and there weren't any other bars really around at all. And there are two things like doing research, knowing how communities are put together, especially how Cincinnati came to be as a village and then a city. But there's two things that were really important to community. And one is the church and the other is the tavern. So they already had the church. They just needed a tavern. Yeah. And going to their community meetings and everything, I noticed that they needed a place where they could come and convene as a, as a community yeah. to put together their community the way they wanted to do so. So that was the whole idea behind putting the punch bowl, punch, punch bowl, or because of the punch bowl, the punch house together. It's a place where different groups can come and share their ideas and their dreams for forming the community around a punch bowl, just like how Cincinnati was formed. It was formed around a punch bowl. And I know this for a fact, Jeff, because you can go visit that punch bowl at our museum at the Union Terminal. Really? Yes, you can. There is a, can I tell the story? Please. Okay. I know you're on like, like what is, what do you mean there's a punch bowl that yeah, Cincinnati was formed You have me on the edge around. of my seat now, literally. Yeah. Look at this. <laughs> so when Cincinnati was formed, you know, first people who came, it was in 1788, right? In December. Because, you know, that's the greatest time to come for a boat ride down the river in the wilderness. Right. You know? <laughs> 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 there were, you know, a few people would come and by 1890, there was a guy named Griffin Yateman. I think Yateman's Cove. Okay. Right. That's where the name comes from for Yateman's Cove. Griffin Yateman. He was a guy from Virginia. He came and he set up an inn and a tavern called the Square and Compass. And it's where everything in this city happened. I mean, we had a few little like dram shops and we had um, some bars and stuff in early Cincinnati, La Santaville, you know. But Yatemans was the place where everyone was, where the soldiers would come from Fort Washington. It's where, you know, the new settlers would come in and form what they wanted the city to be with. It's where Ludlow set the maps for how the streets of Cincinnati were going to be planned out. Wow. It's a really interesting, cool place. But there, he would serve punch. And there is a punch bowl. It's a very um, kind of um, like kind of an Asian motif. I have a picture of it. I'll show you before I leave. It, it's probably about this big. And they have it at our museum center. And I'm the big nerd that I, I got a uh, membership to the museum center <laughs> just so I can go visit my punch bowl. I right? love I'm that. so proud of it. But they formed the city, the ideas for, um, you know, how this, how banking was going to go, how the streets were going to be made, how, um, you know, they would have celebrations, they would have funerals, they'd have court. They would hold this all in this tavern to form our city around a punch bowl. So with that idea, I wouldn't bring that same idea to East Walnut Hills so they could form that community. And it worked. People, that community's built, uh, growing and building and there's groups, there's book clubs, there's all kinds of really cool things that happen at Myrtle's. And what I love is there's such a difference in personalities between Myrtle's Punch House yeah, and Jabs, yet they're still both very reflective of you and the communities they yeah. serve. Well, I look at the neighborhoods. When I, when I put bars together, I look at who is in the, you know, who's in the neighborhood? What does the neighborhood need? I, I'm not, I'm definitely not a cookie cutter kind of person at all. Right. And um, I, I don't think, I think uh, each 52 um, of our neighborhoods here in Cincinnati are so unique, have such incredible personalities because of the people who live there. And they're all special. They're all, they all deserve to have something that reflects them as a community. So I try to capture that when I open places. 
Now, I feel like I'm taking up so much of your time asking about I, I could talk with you all day, so let me know if you got to go. But I We have a whole thing of bourbon I here. I love Jeff. that. Yes. Okay, so going now, I know this is after the fact, but I'm just curious yeah. how this all came together. You recently uh, sort of, a, I, I don't want to overstate it, but you no. did a partnership with Brittany Ruby Miller yeah. involving Maker's Mark. Yeah. Can, can you tell me what that was and what that was for and how that happened? So that was really, really good. Cool. Actually... So Brittany is, a, is a, a good friend of mine. I'm so I'm so blessed to have her as a friend and blessed to have so many entrepreneurs and um, restaurant tours in the city as, as really good friends. I'm so great. We can always talk about, you know, they, they're always on the same level. Like, OK, oh, my gosh, this happened or that happened or we can we can relate to each other. Yeah. I'm so happy to have that community. And no, I love this city, too, because. Not one in Cincinnati. We're not as we're not very competitive with one another. We like to lift each other up, which right. I think is a beautiful thing. It's interesting that you point that out. I never really thought of it, but you're right. It, we do. We all we all lift one. Another. I I do so many events all over the city every, every year where we're all right next to each other. You know, really wanting. We, we all have this um, grand idea of making sure our city is the top. You care about the city. Yeah, we yeah. do. We care about the community. We care about the city. And I partner up with a lot of different um, companies and groups in Cincinnati. I love to do that. I love lo- working with local, other local entrepreneurs. And I'm so happy that I can do that. It's not about competition. It really is about lifting everyone, uh, each one of us up. And it's about making our city the best it could possibly be. If you compete with one another, you'll never get that. It'll, it'll never happen. Yeah. It'll never happen. And I can't do that anyway. I'm too nice of a person. But Brittany was never really a bourbon drinker. And my husband and I, we love, we love rubies. We even, we even got married at the precinct. You know, that's how much we love that's perfect. rubies. We go there all the time. And um, I don't remember how we, we became friends. Um, they wanted me to do a bourbon dinner with them a long time ago. And that's how we became friends. And I noticed she, she wasn't really a bourbon drinker. Her husband, uh, Caleb, was a bourbon drinker. But she never was. And I'm like, if it kills me, I'm going to make you a bourbon drinker. So the whole idea, when Maker's Mark came to me and they said, hey, we want you to do a barrel, and usually, you know... Now, what does that mean when Maker's so, Mark comes to you and says, we want you to do a barrel? Yes. What does that mean? So I have a lot of, of distilleries want me to go and buy a barrel of whiskey down okay. at their distillery, which is great, but it's very expensive. And being a small business owner, sometimes it, it can get a lot. Um, but in the past, I have just teamed up with uh, retail. So where they can sell the bottles and then I could get a case or a couple cases and then I could sell them at my bar by the dram because I can't sell bottles of bourbon or liquor from my bar. Right. You can only serve drinks. Just drinks. Okay. Yeah. That's how the state of not Ohio. Not bottles. Not bottles. All yeah. right. So knowing that I can't, you know, when you get a barrel, it you get about 200 bottles of bourbon. I didn't know that. Yeah. You get a lot. So, so in one, so one barrel is about, would you say 200, around 200, around 200, 50, depending on the age and you know, all barrels are different, Interesting, you know, but you, it's really cool. You go down um, to the distillery um, and you, you know, the distillery is great. They'll, the master distillery will usually be there and they'll uh, pick, uh, you know, five barrels. I remember doing one, we did 12 barrels. They brought the um, tasting up here and I had to take an Uber home. Oh, wow. Like, but, you know, four or five barrels and then we'll taste them all and every barrel is different. So you just pick which one you like and then 
you know, then the, the, a couple more months later, you get the, the bottles. So who knew there were that many nuances or differences in the character of yeah. different barrels under the umbrella of one distiller, right? You know what, Jeff? It is, I consider barrels of bourbon like people. Every single one of them is unique and different. They really are. Fascinating. Even if it comes out of the, you know, came from the same crop of corn, distilled that same in that same batch, and then put into a barrel, you know, put in a barrel and it's sat right next to each other in the rickhouse and aged the same amount of years, it, they, they're going to be completely different. Meaning, you know, if you buy a bottle of Bullet Bourbon, for instance, it may not necessarily have the same characteristics that another bottle of Bullet would have the next time you go buy it, or is there so here's, more to the story? There's more to the story. So distil- uh, distillers and distilleries have this um, this very hard job of tasting a lot of barrels. and Finding for, for for their single barrels at least finding the ones that have the same the same characteristics and the same you know tastes the rest of them they get a consistent product of you know why you like you know um, Woodford Reserve or why you like New Riff or you why you like um, uh, uh, Wild Turkey they blend the barrels together to get a consistent product mm. and then everyone at the distillery has to go in and do tastings to find out which ones you know, they think have that same characteristic and they have to fill out a little paper. It must be really hard to work at a distillery. I feel so bad for those people. I too. I had a little tear. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, they have a, cons- it's a consistent product because of that blending process. So if you pick a barrel yes. and you put your name on it, right. it is unique. It is unique because like I said, every barrel is different. It's not blended with a bunch of different barrels. Just because it has Maker's Mark's name on it does not necessarily mean it's going to be reminiscent of the Maker's Mark you're used to drinking. Right, exactly. So Maker's Mark is unique, though. Maker's Mark is unique in that um, they work really hard in the aging process to get consistency. And they also blend their barrels together um, to get a consistent product. They also rotate their barrels to get a consistent product. So when they they have a really unique barrel pick process, their Maker's Select, where they kind of use the idea of what they did for their Maker's 46. Okay, you know Maker's 46? Yes. So Maker's Mark is unique in that uh, they take a mature barrel of Maker's Mark bourbon. They dump that into, you know, um, a little holder Mm -hmm. and they take the top off of that barrel. And in that barrel, they put about 10 to 12 French oak toasted staves in that barrel. And then they put that bourbon that they just poured out back in that barrel and put the top back on. And they put it into a cold warehouse. It's a cave, actually, that stays at like 55 degrees. And age it for a few more weeks, about eight weeks. And then it comes out and that's Maker's 46. That's the difference between regular Maker's Mark and 46. Okay, so how they came up with that idea for Maker's 46 is they went and worked with Independent Stave and they came up with, I don't know, about 100 different experiments with different woods, different ways of charring, different ways of toasting, you know, all these different ways of doing things. And number 46 was the one they liked for Maker's 46. Well, they took that idea and they put that into how you pick a barrel. So you take different staves that you like and you um, taste and blend those together to get your specific baker's mark that you want. I hope that's the, that's the easiest way. And a stave yeah. is? A stave is a piece of wood that's made that's used to make the barrel. And when they make a barrel, they char the inside of the barrel so that it, uh, the char acts as a filter to when the um, whiskey's going into the, it's being soaked into the wood. Some of the... Um, off flavors can be filtered out through that char 
the wood is the flavor. So it brings in the um, wintertime, it goes back into self bringing flavor and color. And so you're able to add different nuanced characteristics to right. it by using these different staves that they have at Maker's Mark. Fascinating. It really but is. You're not so committed cool. to one barrel. No, or there's so. thousands of ways wow. that you can put together a very unique bottle for yourself i love how they did that i think that's so cool yeah and it's so so, unique. so if you can't sell the bottle in the bar right i can't sell it in the bar well here's the thing so Brittany, uh, i teamed up with Brittany. i said makers mark came to me and they want me to do a, a barrel pick and we're going to sell it at one of the retailers and we're just gonna you know go through the state and get it into our a couple cases in our bar i was like if you don't want to do this with with your company, with Rubies, I understand, but I definitely want you to come down with me to pick this barrel because I'm, it is, if it kills me, I'm going to make you a bourbon drink. It'll be a fun day. It will be, yeah. Nevertheless. So, of course, Brittany being who she is, so she's an incredible businesswoman. She's in, she lives, breathes, and, and just sees everything for her company. I love to watch her work. I love how she runs Rubies. Her dad should be, I know he's so proud of her and, yeah. and her brothers, Dylan and Brandon. And I mean, they are just the most incredible family. I just love them to death. But Brittany got, she brought some of her bartenders down and spent the day and it was all women who picked this barrel, which is different from the other barrel picks that I've had. I love picking with anybody. I love picking with men and everybody, but it was very different and very cool to pick with these women who are very detail oriented, really thinking about the customer who we were going to be, you know, who was going to be drinking this right? Um, rather than just for ourselves. And, and sophisticated in, palates too, because, yeah. you know, women do have, we have a more detailed palate, more detailed palates. Really generally do. speaking, it just, it, it is what it is. It is. It is. So we, it was really a fun day. Some of them had never been to a distillery and what a distillery to go visit for the first time is Maker's Mark. If you cool. haven't been to Maker's Mark, you really should go down and check it out. It's gorgeous. Huh. It really is. But we on Friday, we had our launch, and we sold out of all the bottles. That's great. I know. Yeah. It's really, you can still come to like Ruby's, or you can come to Japs or Myrtle's, and you can taste it by the dram, by the glass, but all the bottles are gone. But there will be another one. <laughs> You're going to, yeah. not, not just with Maker's Mark, but I mean, there are other opportunities with... Yes. other distilleries yes. and other partners that you'll be doing in the future, yes. I, I imagine, right? I, I love picking barrels of whiskey and I love doing it. Um, I just love meeting, you know what the best part is when it comes out, you get to meet all the people who are into, you know, whiskey or who are not in whiskey. Or, I, I don't know. I just, I like the people part of it the best. I, I like tasting it, of course, but I love the people part of it. What sets you apart, I think, is your attention to detail. Thank you. And in everything in life. Is there one area that you think you take too far or another area where you maybe feel like you kind of let slide a little in the balance of it all? Oh, gosh. Yeah, all the time. <laughs> I do my best to like keep everything. You know, I, my hairstyle always sucks, I think. What? <laughs> what are you talking about? I, I don't know. I can't get my hair right. But one day I will. One day I'll get my that's the stupidest thing ever to say. But um, <laughs> I don't even know. What do you wish you were better at? Oh, gosh. So I wish I could cook. Oh, my God. So does my husband. <laughs> <laughs> I can't cook. I, I am a horrible cook. I, so what do you do? I try How so do you hard. Eat? Well, you know, I have a lot of friends in this in the industry who cook, and yeah. I know how to make drinks, so I make drinks for them, and they cook for me. Right. <laughs> so you just but, take stuff home? and Yeah, we, we go out a lot, but we just redid our whole kitchen, and now 
B's always like, I'm going to invite all, we're going to have a party. I'm going to invite all the chefs and I'm, they're going to teach you how to cook. That's hilarious. <laughs> you get this amazing kitchen and you don't know how to I, use it. I know. It's, <laughs> but I try. I have an Instapot, you know, and I, I, I could cook things in that. That's great. It's, it's a great thing. You could follow a recipe though, right? <laughs> I try. Obviously you can follow a recipe. I can follow a recipe, but for some reason, Jeff, I tell you, I, I screw it up somehow. I'm the I, same way. I don't know what I do. I remember one time I tried to make something. Uh, I tried to make beef stew. This is so funny. It was the last year, and I followed the recipe. Uh, you know, I got off the internet. I to a T, and I made I make stupid mistakes. Like I made a mistake instead of putting like cornstarch in, you know, to like thicken it up a little. Sure. Put freaking baking soda in it. And I had like <laughs> I had a beef stew volcano. Like, <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> B came home. He's like, "What are you doing?" I'm like, <laughs> "Blowing up our kitchen." No, he's like, "You can't cook." I can't believe a person who makes the, the greatest cocktails can't cook anything. No, but I'm right there with you. Like, I, I could grill a steak, and, right. and and I can follow basic recipes. But when you start oh. getting a little more detailed, I fall into the same traps that you do. Right. And I don't know. Like maybe maybe that is our dyslexia where. There are certain details that require a different kind of preparation. A lot of it is right. timing and knowing how long it's going to take to do this before you fire that up. Yeah. And blending it all together and having it together at the right moment. That's where it becomes an art form. I think and so. And when I sit at the chef's table at really any yeah. restaurant, you know, a boca comes to mind immediately oh, because they have yeah. those little stools that are up where you can sort of watch them in action. Yeah. It's fascinating to I me, think right? so, too. I don't know how they, I mean, I don't know how they do it. I think it's fantastic. It's more than just a skill. So, it's an art form. It really, really is. It, it really is. It's it's something that I would love to know how to do. I just, I have not, I have definitely not mastered it. <laughs> but, but what yeah, you do, thing. but what you do is an art form. Well, yeah, it is. I think, and so. I think with liquid, I can do liquid things really right. well. <laughs> when it comes to like <laughs> solid foods, no, I just, I should just go to liquid diet. <laughs> well, I can do this all day. I know. This is fun. I know. This I love really talking fun. to you. So you must, if you haven't had the opportunity or if it's been a while, rediscover Japs and rediscover Myrtle's Punch House yes. right there in the corner of Woodburn and Myrtle and then Japs on Main Street and over the Rhine, just north of the Central Business District, yep. just uh, one block north of Central Parkway. You got Right it. there. <laughs> and it's Molly's Brands now. Yeah, Molly's Brands. Jeff, thank you so much for having me. It was me. great to see you. It's great to see you. Thanks, I'm glad. Thanks for drinking whiskey with me. <laughs> Anytime. All right. Well, Person of Interest is produced by Natalie Jones. If you found Molly is fascinating and interesting and beautiful and as compelling as I did, send us an email, POI at WKRQ.com. We always welcome your thoughts. Uh, also, feel free to make a suggestion for a future person of interest. And don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Until next time, for Person of Interest, I'm Jeff Thomas. Thanks for listening. These are the people behind the stories that matter to you. Thanks for listening to Q102's Person of Interest with Jeff Thomas. Yeah.